0: Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we
1: do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world
0: to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send
1: us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.
0: And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at close talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's Facebook.com/slash Close Talking. We also have a website, CloseTalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show. And Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed. And if you go to CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to this all new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Jack rossiter Mundley.
1: And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton.
0: And on today's show, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by a very special guest, Tara Betts. Hello. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. All right. For any of our listeners out there, a little background on Tara Betts. She has taught at Rutgers University, University of Illinois, Chicago, and at Stateville Prison as part of the Prison and Neighborhood Arts Project. Not only a storied career teaching, but also a very impressive pedigree as a performer of poetry, the 1999 Gwendolyn Brooks Open Mic Award winner HBO Deaf Poetry Jam, Uh, and twice a representative of Chicago at the National Poetry Slam. And obviously poetry on stage and on the page because Tara Betts is widely published and anthologized. Collections include Ark and Hue, which came out from Willow Books in 2009, Break the Habit, which came out from Trio House Press in 2016, and co-editor of The Beijing of America, personal narratives about being mixed race in the 21st century. And then a couple of anthologies that I just want to shout out, especially Ghost Fishing, and Eco Justice Poetry anthology, which included a poem. Uh, and if you want to know more about that anthology, you can go to episode 86 of our sister podcast, Poetry Spoken Here, which featured Melissa Tucky, who uh, edited that anthology, talking about it. Um, and to give you uh, an idea of the kind of company that Tara Betts keeps, I believe in that anthology, her poem is sandwiched between uh, one by Patrick Rossall and one by Ross Gay. So pretty cool. <laughs> um, and we are, of course, here to talk about uh, Tara's forthcoming collection, Refused to Disappear, which is coming out in just uh, July of this year. Uh, currently, Tara is the poetry editor at the Langston Hughes Review, Inaugural Poet for the People Practitioner Fellow at University of Chicago and founder of the Whirlwind Learning Center. So once again, welcome to Close Talking. And you can tell why we are so thrilled to have you join us with all of those wonderful accomplishments.
2: Um, You know, I I feel like you stay busy, (laughs) (laughs) stay busy because we're all inching a little closer to the end.
0: (laughs) <laughs> it's so true it's so true and Take staying busy is. in so many different avenues on the page on the stage and in the community which is really really cool to to see um and because of your background in performance poetry and slam poetry i thought as a little question that we would go around as we do when we have a guest what is a favorite performance of a poem that you have seen i'm thinking in person but if it's video or audio recording open to anything so tossing it over to you as our as our special guest
2: well I'd have to say the first one that came to mind for me is Sekou Sundiata's poem Blink Your Eyes see my, I was on my
0: way to see my I was on my way to see my woman but the law said I was on my way through a red light. red light red light red light red light but if you saw my woman you could understand
2: I was just being a man um, unfortunately, he's no longer with us, so but there are really good too. recordings of it online.
0: Sunroof stereo, radio, radio, sunroof stereo, radio, sunroof stereo, radio, black leather bucket Because
2: Because um, it was part of that Bill when Moyer the series, The Language of Life. And if you've ever heard Sekou Sundiata read a poem, it's, it's a performance. Now I could wake up in the morning without a warning and my world could change. Blink your eyes. I also like, he has this one (laughs) called Space, and it's a monologue, and it was recorded on Mouth Almighty Records, which was a little imprint that did spoken word albums. And I remember hearing poems by Sekou on there, and that's where I first heard Space. And um, another poem by another Another writer we know pretty much as a critic, Greg Tate, who wrote a lot about music and he recently passed away. So he had a poem on there about hip hop. Buddha blessed and booyah blasted. These are the words that she manifested. Hip-hop is inverse capitalism. Hip-hop is reverse colonialism. Hip-hop is the world the slaveholders made, sent into nigified future shock. Hip-hop is the plunter that came from down under, Mac in heaven for fun. Hip-hop is the black aesthetic byproduct of the American dream machine, our culture of consumption, commodification, and subliminal seduction. Where George Clinton warned us about media urge overkill, the pimping of the pleasure principle. Hip-hop embraces the pleasures of the
1: pimping principle
2: and um, the first... um, I remember I wrote about it one time cuz I used pimp to do music criticism when I was in college Hip hop pimp the funk Hip hop pimp the funk the funk the p funk the bomb before
1: the white boy and heavy metal too
2: See hip hop and I mentioned the poem in it and, it, and like my it editor was first... friends with Greg's mom so one time she called the editor called me and she was with Greg's mom and she goes Oh, yes, you're the one who mentioned Grant's poem. You know, did not know <laughs> his mother was like a former Black Panther and had done all of these things in her own right. And there's a book out about her now by Jake Ann Jones. And I was just like, she was so sweet. She's just like somebody's mom. <laughs> you know, you know and, then, and then you go, oh, wow, this is like a whole history and legacy of. Black voices in these two generations of the mom and the son, you know, and then he of course did the Black Rock Coalition and Burnt Sugar and wrote really wonderful books like Flyboy and the Buttermilk, but Greg Sekou, um, if I think of of women or other poets that really strike me in particular, I think of um, uh, Sonia Sanchez's Performance of her poem, Stay on the Battlefield with Sweet Honey and Rock.
3: I'm gonna stay on the
2: battlefield
1: I had come into the city carrying life in my eyes amid rumors of death calling out to everyone who would listen. It is time to move us all into another century. Time for freedom and racial and sexual justice. Time for women and children and men. Time for hands unbound.
2: Um, I like, actually I'm kind of into the librettos by poets. Um, Cause June Jordan wrote one called I was looking at the ceiling then I saw the sky. That one is really beautiful. I like um, the libretto by Tulani Davis about Malcolm X. That's amazing. And the music was by her cousin, the composer, Anthony Davis. And I think that's coming back to theaters now, but I found a CD of it years ago and it may be streaming. I don't know if it is, but those are some of my favorites. in terms of slam i'm trying to think huh because there's been so many people in slam that i loved and got to meet personally i i feel like it's it's wrong to just name (laughs) and cherry pick
0: (laughs) what what are you thinking connor what are some for you
1: oh man um well i'm definitely gonna check out all of those i don't think i've yeah that i probably right after this yeah i feel like poets doing librettos is something that needs to be, I feel like there's, it's more common than, I know very little about librettos, but I was thinking about um, Douglas Kearney is also a librettist and um, anyway, this is a strange, well, there I uh, went to Oberlin and I I was lucky to be in the same year um, as the poet uh, Taylor Johnson um and he has published the book um inheritance which came out through alice Mm -hmm. james and there was a, a my freshman year there was a uh like a open mic poetry competition and i i had a terrible poem about chicken wings and um the Buddha or something that was, I was first, first out, (laughs) but then uh, Taylor had these poems and there was one that I remember. I don't remember the title, but it was about um, Palestine and I think connecting it to black liberation and it, it brought the house down and it was, yeah, it was amazing. Um, And it's one of those I'll always remember, even though I was probably, I guess, 18 when I was there. So
2: I think a lot of times when people think you perform a poem, you either have to be funny or you have to sound good or you have to be entertaining. Right. But then they don't think about how much content really moves people. Like if you're talking about something they really love, they'll Mm -hmm. go with you. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll
1: go with you. Yeah, that's, that's really true.
0: Definitely. I, along those lines, I mean, there's a few that kind of occurred to me Mm -hmm. right off. Um, I haven't seen them perform it in person, but, and this might just be that it's because there's another Jurassic World movie coming out, but obviously, you know, Dinez Smith's Dinosaurs in the Hood is Mm -hmm. a great poem on the page in the way that they bring it to life in readings is really dramatic. And it is a reading and a performance that really hits all of those notes that you're talking about. It's funny, it's dramatic, it's kind of a big performance. Um, And on the whole kind of other side, um, I was lucky enough to record a reading that Jericho Brown did. And in it, he did um, bullet points and I was recording it with headphones on. So even though we're in a whole big room, my recorder was plugged straight into the microphone, so it was, like, directly in my ears. Bullet points.
3: I will not shoot myself in the head, and I will not shoot myself in the back, and I will not hang myself with a trash bag, and if I do, I promise you,
0: I will not do it in a police car while handcuffed. And he is a very compelling reader, but a very different kind of reader. The audience was all there, you know, really present, really hooked in the reading, and it's a really powerful reading, but I remember that experience so strongly because it was, like, directly into my ears. And then also, you know, a, a Slam, a Chicago Slam person who I think of is uh, Maria McRae, who, oh. uh, yeah, is no longer uh, with us, but did incredible readings that mixed in singing and were, you know, many of them drew drew from her own experience uh, in the military and serving in Vietnam. And it was a really compelling mix of personal history with poetry, with music, with just a whole lot. um, Just really, really incredible.
3: You can have your army khakis. You can have your navy blue. But here's another uniform I'll introduce to you. This uniform is different, the finest ever seen. The Germans called us devil dogs. The name is just Marine, Marine. We fought the war in Mexico, we fought at Bellow Woods. We fought a thousand places that no one thought we could. Our name is Holy Terror. Among the Viet Cong, a war fought bravely. A war some say was wrong. Marines, Marines. So, boys, here's a little tip I'll pass along to you. Just get yourself a good Marine. There's nothing she can do. And when I get to heaven, St. Peter, I will tell another Marine reporting, sir, I served my time in hell. What was it like? people keep asking me is it a voyeuristic thrill you seek for free or is it real concern when I stare thousand mile vacantly dead decades duet plus I now remember a numbed non-response my only answer never and ever no more the same reliving the murdering shame long ago were lady deaths decades twice there were brown brothers I helped ice. The facts of delayed stress and Edwin Starr continue to ask me. War! Maria! Huh! What is it good for?
2: Yeah. She was very, very kind to me. We used to both live in the same Rogers Park neighborhood, and we used to perform in a collective of women poets who did poems about menstruation. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was called The Empress Who Wears Red Clothes. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> me, Maria, Mars Gamba Adisa, Sharon Powell, Anita Dakani, and um, Marta Colazzo, and I think Sharon Sharon's still writing poems. She She actually won the Gwendolyn Brooks Award a couple years ago, but everybody else has gone on to other things, or they're doing other stuff, or creating other things, and but I do really wish I had like a book of Maria McRae poems or just like a CD mm. of Maria's poems.
0: Mm. I can send you a link to a, a recorded reading of hers. Uh, I that. That I have. Okay. Yeah, that that is a, there's an episode. It's not amazing quality. Cause I think it was just like a tape recorder at a microphone during a reading. Um, but an episode, as I mentioned, the poetry spoken here, our, our sister podcast, um, there's an archival recording that we had that we put out as an episode a while ago uh, of her. Mm-hmm. So I'll be sure to send that to you.
2: On a funny note, I'll tell you a funny story because I don't want to be sad. Yeah. (laughs) Maria and I had this thing because she would come to open mics every week and we would usually be at mental graffiti but we would see each other at so many other readings. We just had a thing where if we were sitting in different parts of the bar and we saw a poem that was bad or we knew we were thinking the same thing about the poem, we would start moving in this in this unison kind of fashion like there was an invisible thread between our heads <laughs> so if the poem was bad and you saw me lean back and she's leaning towards me we're just doing this moving back and forth like the invisible thread is working
1: oh my gosh
2: we wouldn't like talk bad about people or like boo them or anything but you'd be like yeah that poem was bad
0: <laughs> you <rocking>. would know <laughs> I don't think I've
2: had anybody I could do that with since since she wasn't at readings anymore Mm. but that was so funny
0: (laughs) that's beautiful (laughs) absolutely love that oh my goodness Uh, that's great Ah, that's amazing incredible well I can assure you that uh Connor and I probably do something similar if we ended up in that situation, but absolutely none of that was going on as we uh, read through Refuse to Disappear because it is an all hits, no skips uh, (laughs) compilation of poems. uh, Mm -hmm. And we are here to talk about, well, we'll we'll have one poem as our jumping off point, but we'll talk about the whole collection a little bit. but yeah, let's get into it with uh, small illuminations. I don't know if there's anything you want to say to introduce the poem or just jump right in.
2: Um, we can jump right in. I'm cool with that. I mean,
0: yeah, I, I hope
2: the poem speaks for itself. You know, I wrote it after while I was teaching at Stateville Prison. So, I mean, that's a big part of what informs it. But I want to get into it.
0: Let's do, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get into it. Let's hear uh let's hear the poem.
2: So, here we go. Small illuminations. 1. Albert is a gentle tower. His arms arched over tabletop like bridge beams or girders. Even if he does not understand everything he reads, he smiles like a good kid, like the kid he probably was 30 some years ago when he was in the wrong car with the wrong people at the wrong time that he will never get back. Two, the attention to detail borders on flawless, unscuffed white sneakers, perfected line fades tucked under precisely folded scullies, immaculate with what you got as a clean, hard fought pride. Three, one week, I bring crisp folders, a bundle of sharpened pencils with full pink erasers round and soft as a doll's blush. They rub away small errors, clearing smudges from a page like an actual correction. Four, look for Albert's easy grin first when I walk into the concrete block classroom locked in the education building relieved that the broken window denies the cold like a plea. One brother in blues with thermal sleeve peeking out of the dull faded ocean of cloth arching over his torso. A cellmate hands me the slightly worn, safeguarded staple bound book of poems. The signature resolute and matching letters of a poet's name who strolled into prison like a mother without fear of any child. Margaret Burroughs, more than a decade since she left the cell of her body. I clutch her poems, knowing how they passed from her hands like a prayer. We both smile, small illuminations in a dark hell. When the cellmate says, Albert wanted you to have this. He got transferred. He knew you'd keep it safe.
1: Thank
0: you. Thank you. So you mentioned that that poem you wrote during your time teaching in in prisons. Um, It it sounds like it's based on an actual experience, a a particular experience, I mean. Um, Is that the case?
2: It is. Albert was a real person in my class. And he has since been released, I'm happy to say. Um, That's great. And he's doing all right, you know. Um, I can't say the same for everybody who has been incarcerated during COVID. Um, There's a couple previous students that I've had who passed away as a result of COVID. But that was one of the happier stories for me to share because for over 10 years, I believe, it was for a long time, for years and years, Margaret Burroughs, Dr. Margaret Burroughs, who founded the DuSable Museum and the Southside Community Arts Center here in Chicago, which is one of the surviving, it may be the only surviving WPA project that's still in its original building and people go to visit that building um, because of its Bauhaus architecture still. And it's directly across the street from where she used to live. So if you're on that block, it's definitely a part of Chicago's South Side history, if you know who Margaret Burroughs is. But that was part of her mission, too. It wasn't just being a cultural, uh, a preserver of the culture of Black people. It was also about what about our, our people that are locked up? Who are still inside and who's there to be supportive of them. So, the organization PNAP that I was teaching the class through was kind of started and inspired by Dr. Burroughs. And for me, as somebody growing up in the Midwest and knowing who she was, reading some of her poems, seeing some of her visual art, you know, it felt really like an honor to kind of walk in her footsteps that way and be given a book. That she actually signed. So yeah, sometimes real life will give you the poem. You don't have to look for it super hard, but you have to bring the art to it and not just bring the reportage of the event.
0: Absolutely. For folks who maybe don't know that much about Margaret Burroughs, <laughs> um, and you touched on a couple of the things that that she did and some of, of what she was about, but maybe a little bit more detail about who she was. Cause we have listeners not only from all over the US, but also internationally who you know, the more the more the word about Margaret Burroughs can spread, the better.
2: And unfortunately, her her biography is out of print. She did do an autobiography. So I have a copy of it because it's one of those books that if you're in the right place at the right time, you can snag one or you can find it on the Internet. Um, I do not remember the exact title for it. But if you look for Margaret T.G. Burroughs online and put biography, it'll probably pop up. Um, there's a more recent biography by another woman named Mary Ann Cause called Southside Venus, which I think it offers a nice chronology of her life and a lot of these things that she accomplished. But it's not the same as hearing it in Dr. Burroughs' voice, you know. Um, and for those, and for anybody who's listening, if you've never heard of the DuSable Museum, in a lot of ways, that museum is the precursor to Black history museums all over the country. It's one of the original ones, if not the first one. And <laughs> I would dare say, you know, I think it's a precursor for what we have with the Smithsonian in DC now, you know? And she raised money for that. First, she had it in her house and she just gradually grew her collection. and people would come and visit and schools started to come visit. And then she said, oh my gosh, we need a space. And she hustled and got a space. Um, And it's so ironic because the campus where the museum is at was like, it's kind of like, it looks like it's part of the park in Washington Park. I think it was an abandoned police station and she hustled in politic to get the building and then they kind of refurbished it and built it so you know you think about that now it's like hmm. mm.
0: <laughs> I mean it's...
2: With Black Lives Matter and everything you're just like what the police mean in the Black community I'm like it's almost kind of funny
0: I, I mean it makes Connor and I talked about the poem could we please give the police departments to the grandmothers and that is like the literal embodiment of that right mm-hmm. like take over the police station and turn it into in that poem I think she calls for them to turn into love temples and like yeah that's that's what that museum is you know
2: I think we need spaces where everybody's history is a little bit more in line with the actual stories of what have happened to people Mm. you know because we think about it it's not just you know we always pick on the dead white men but I'm like okay where are the stories about indigenous people, Asian people, Latino people, gay people, trans people, you know, like we're just now starting to scratch the surface of that in a way that's a little more mainstream than just people doing it in their little pockets where they see themselves.
0: This poem is part of a project, the Unbarred Poetics Project, which is trying to share more stories and share more realities around incarceration through poetry and also through filmmaking. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that project, this poem's place in it, the other poets who are involved and kind of what that project is all about.
2: Well, I mean, I saw there was an opportunity (laughs) to kind of share, you know, I'm always trying to think how can we put poetry into public spaces? And because the truth is, is like most of the time people aren't going to read a poetry book. I teach college classes all the time and I'll have college students who want to be poets, They've never read a a full poetry book from beginning to end. Even though they're still cheaper than most novels you buy in (laughs) hardcover. You just can't get people to read a whole book of poems. So, I mean, early on in my, my writing career, I was thinking about that. Like, okay, that's why I'll do the open mics and the slams. But then I started thinking, you know, how do you just put them in places like art installations and performances and You know, sometimes I would have my students as a project put a poem on a bookmark and then go into a bookstore and stick it into a book. (laughs) You know, just doing crazy stuff to be like, we're going to insert this in places like Guerrilla Poets. (laughs) And (laughs) I think there's something to be said for that because poetry isn't always looked at like it's marketable. Or if it is, it's marketed because you're under 30 or you've touched on a current events angle that people are excited about. And I I just think there are places for poems because they do something to your heart. They do something to the way you think. And we don't live in a culture that really promotes that either. We have a long ways to go. So envisioningjustice.org is where it's at. But I I really wanted to work with the filmmaker that I ended up collaborating with, David Weathersby. He's done a couple of amazing documentaries. Uh, One of them is The Debauchery Ball, where he documents this party. It's an underground party. Um, Kahari actually runs it, one of the poets in the project, Kahari B. And um, in it, he started it as a birthday party for himself. It always has a secret location. No one knows where it is. They play lots of house music. You can show up in any state of clothing that you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very, it's very like sexy and body that way. Um, some people do like bondage stuff where they they learn how to tie the ropes and stuff like that. But it's really just a big house party, and they have a great time. I've never been. <laughs> I'm probably going to wear lots of clothes if I go. But (laughs) it's, you know, so David did this beautiful documentary where he documents the party and how the party got started and why people go. Um, Kennedy's done a couple others, The Color of Art. And he just, he has one that's called It's Different in Chicago. So it talks about the development of the hip hop and house music scenes here in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And he's interviewing a few artists here in Chicago, like Mario Smith, who's a local poet, um, Phnom, who's a, a rapper and a poet, and he runs the MC school here on the South Side. And Ange 13, come to mind, who's also another MC who's in, um, I think the first time I saw Ange 13, she was in Upski's book, Bomb the Suburbs, if you remember that from the early aughts. It was like one of those early books about hip hop that was getting published. And he talked a lot about Chicago hip hop in that book. And Ange was featured in that book, like back in the day. Um, so I was really excited. I said, ooh, David really gets telling stories about Chicago. And I wanted to work with an artist who had that and had a really good cinematic eye. So I said, look, There's this grant opportunity and I just got a nonprofit. Maybe we can make this project happen and I can start to build grant history for Whirlwind Learning Center. So he says, okay, what do you need? He's like, I don't, you know, at first he was wobbling, like, I don't know if I need any money. I'm like, you always need money. so so i said send me your supply list i'll write up the budget you tell me if you want to you know go forward with it so i wrote i wrote up the grant and we got the grant so so then i was like okay david i'm gonna pay you we gotta find poets and so i mean i know a lot of poets but it was during the midst of covid so no one was going outside so we had to plan a lot of outdoor shoots um I think mine is the only one that's not in a big vacant space because we got, we were just running out of places outdoors to shoot. And I felt bad for, I said, David, just come to my house and shoot. So my video is basically in my book room, which is a dining room with a big table crowded. And the dining room is just wall to wall books, except for where there's a window and I have plants all over the window. So he's just like, oh yeah, we can shoot in here. I said, are you sure? It's a mess. He goes, no, we can shoot in here.
0: (laughs) It looks really good in the video. It does, yeah. It looks great.
2: I've I've been thinking about making notes because there's one shot where he focuses just on the bookshelf where I have poetry anthologies. And I haven't Mm. made notes to be like, these are all the books on that (laughs) shelf."
0: (laughs) That would be cool. That would be um, very cool.
2: But it was really cool because to work with him and to get Kahari and Sierra and Damon Williams doing the voice of Devon Terrell's poem who is still currently incarcerated at Stateville. Like Mm. to talk about these different angles, like what does it mean to be far away from your loved ones? What does it mean to know what incarceration has done to your family and your community but now people can make millions of dollars at marijuana dispensaries and what does it mean when people look at your community like it's a cost-benefit analysis like how much money can we make per person if this happens instead of looking at you as a person like that 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 was the kernel of what I wanted to get at in this project and get people writing about it and talking about it
1: absolutely um thank you for that and thinking about what you were saying about the different angles of, um, incarceration and getting people writing about that. And it's the, the, the rates of, of incarceration in this country are, um, astronomical compared to other places. Um, and it's also, um, someone was talking about how in the, 1800s i think there was a town and they used to have in the u.s and they used to have the jail it was in the middle of the town basically Mm -hmm. um and now and, and it sort of served a social function to kind of um like you know if you know if you do bad you'll get thrown in this jail or something like that um And now when you think about where prisons are located in the country, they're very, very far removed um, from society. And it's it's it's, you know, it's you it's always a very long drive to get there. And, you know, um, it's it truly is uh, a different way of just kind of abandoning whole groups of people and kind of removing them from society. Um, so it makes a lot of sense what sort of that, that kernel of the project you were talking about in terms of starting the conversation, um, and getting the different angles of it. Um, and yeah, and I was thinking about that in terms of, of this poem, um, which I, I just really love. And it also, I don't know it makes me think too of the other thing that you said about the gorilla poetry, because it's this wonderful story that you tell in the poem of, of Albert. And like, you know, it begins with this description kind of, of, you know, who he is and his impeccable fashion, um, and his, and then this kind of, you know, the encounter with, uh, bringing the folders, um, you know, and we get the scene of the, of the teaching. And then at the end, it's, it's Albert has, has uh, left the book for you and is kind of, um, I don't know, it, it made me think of the kind of the slipping the, the poem into, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a bookmark in a, in a book or something like that. Um, And the fact that that's kind of the moment where The story ends in the poem um i don't know it was it it's it's beautiful and powerful um and i have a lot of questions about it but i i was curious like i was if there's a kind of i don't know when you were when you were writing this poem like um i don't know the the kinds of the connections with poetry and like The care, like Albert's sort of um, relationship to poetry, and then also that in incarceration. I'm just, it's not like a. (laughs) Jack's very good at asking um, sort of questions that sound like questions. Um, I I, I just have a lot of (laughs) random things that I'm connecting in my head, and I'm yeah, and I'm I'm curious if you have thoughts about that. Sorry, yeah.
2: I think it's hard sometimes to kind of if you've never been in a prison to kind of spell out some of those things like and and you may get some even if they seem really simple like you you mentioned the part about the immaculate fashion and i think part of that is is sometimes people you want like like it almost feels like if you've ever seen fresh dress the hip-hop documentary And they talk about what it meant, you know, or if you've been in, or if you're old school, you talked about being clean. Like you wanted everything to pop and be crisp and be just right. Like, I think there's a lot of that sensibility, even though they're in uniforms and they don't get to wear their own clothes or they get, you know, stuff that sometimes it's a little bit beat up. Like they will want it to be super precise. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that, but then also I remember one time I was with some other teachers from the program. I said, wow, everybody's sneakers are super clean. And then one of the other teachers was like, yeah, probably because they don't walk very far. You don't go to a lot of places. And I say, you don't Mm. put that kind of wear on your sneakers. Mm. You know, it's not just, I don't want them to get scuffed. It's like, where are you going to go to get them stuffed?" And then it just kind of broke my heart a little bit because I was like, yeah, it's not just I want to be crisp. It's like, you know, you're kind of stuck in this regimented place. You know. So it, it puts another edge on it that's not readily inherent if you're just reading the poem. You know, and mm-hmm. and so many small things when you go and visit a prison feel like that, like little everyday things, like that could be considered him giving me a book, it could be considered contraband, right? Um, mm. Depending on how people want to interpret it. It's just a book. It's a book that they allowed into the prison, I'm sure, <laughs> and did not confiscate after he had it for many, many years. But it's not looked kindly upon. Also, if you're a, a woman In a men's facility, they think you're looking for a boyfriend or something. You know, you can sometimes get in trouble for stuff like that, you know. But it was clearly a teacher student thing where he wanted to share this with me because he knew, you know, I think in a way that was like his nod, like, you're doing this work. And I felt really honored that he gave me that book. And he didn't want something bad to happen to it because that the truth of it is when most people leave a facility or they go to another place, they know the book will come up missing or they can't bring it with them. So he didn't want it to get thrown away or lost.
1: Yeah, that really comes through at the end. Um, and it's, it's interesting that made me think about um, this great and also kind of painful moment in the poem in part three um where it it goes they rub away small errors clearing smudges from a page like an actual correction um and just the way that you were talking about you know those little details that have that extra um like valence of the fact that it's you know um the perfect shoe because because uh it's there's nowhere to go um and and the i don't know i i was the use of correction as kind of like you know a correctional facility and kind of um making a, a jab at
0: like um you
1: know the, the
0: fact that the facility itself yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, well, it, it's absolutely. such a it's such a powerful moment because in yeah. writing when you have an eraser you actually remove the misstep and you replace it with something better or with what you intended and in theory we should be able to do that as a society and people should be able to do that with their lives but so often quote-unquote correctional facilities and incarceration they don't do that at all they deepen whatever the the errors as the beginning of the poem says in the wrong car with the wrong people at the wrong time like you know the kind of thing that should be in someone's life, hopefully, easy to erase, right. and and build something different on, kind of similar to uh, you quote the the Bob Dylan song, you know about uh, George Jackson, which is all about seven. You know, you shouldn't end up in a situation where you're increasingly confronted with violence because of seventy dollars. Yeah, you know?
2: and I mean, honestly, it's it's kind of funny to think about, like. I didn't see this thread of me talking about mass incarceration in this book. A lot of the poems, I thought I was going to really focus this book around Black women and kind of celebrating stories and the visibility and persistence of Black women. But then I ended up, I was like, wow, I I just keep coming back to this. And I was like, maybe it's me doing movements in this book of everybody who needs to be visible in these poems, right? And I thought a lot about the title poem, um, by which was really heavily inspired by Eric Priestley, who's a, a Los Angeles-based writer who was really involved with the writing workshops and Watts. And he used to message me on Facebook all the time, or send me little notes and you know really funny dude really smart dude talked about would tell me about his childhood in the south and I think sometimes I'll just say this if you meet I'm not that old but if you meet much older writers than me and they start telling you stories about the past write them down and share them with people because I think they know they're about to go and they're like okay I got to give it to somebody you know and there was something about Eric um I think about him and, and one of my other mentors, Alpha Michael Weaver, you know, he, he would just tell me stories about, I remember one time I was in Baltimore with Alpha. We're driving through town. He's like, yeah, this is the Procter and Gamble factory where I used to work. Yeah. This is where I used to live when I was first married. This is like, he's just telling me all these stories. And then he's like, and I worked with this guy who studied under Langston Hughes and da, 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 da. and I was just like, okay, I'm, I should be writing this down. <laughs> I should be ready to tell this story when he's not here to tell it anymore. And I mm. keep telling Alpha he has at least another 10 to 20 years to give me before he's allowed to die.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Get all the stories down.
2: Yes, he's got a, you know. And it's so funny because it's like his family, you know, we're really close now. But I think there was something about Eric's poem that made me feel like, you know, just those conversations we had and thinking about that. And um, I think the Leimert Park series was doing an anthology and I, I sent that poem to them because I'm like, dude, he's from LA. Like you have to talk about him. You got to talk about a lot of people. Like, I think that's part of our, our job as writers. It's like we're semi-historians too. We keep these people alive and relevant. We look to the past and we look to the future.
0: Well, I think there's a lot of poems in this collection that really do that. Um, the first one that comes to mind is Two Simones, which is about Simone Biles and Simone Manuel, the gymnast and the swimmer. But it's also about Nina Simone. Where it's 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 very current. It's about two very young, incredibly accomplished women, but it's also about the lineage that their names carry. Right. Um, And and there's numerous other poems in the collection I think that do that as well. Um, Yeah. Let's. So as you mentioned that originally this you thought this was going to focus sort of it sounds like a little bit more in that direction, kind of specifically on black women and certainly the first part of the book, Say Her Name, is is highly focused on that. But let, I'm curious to hear a little bit about how the poem ended up with the kind of three named sections that it does. So it's Say Her Name, The Boom Bap, and A Wall is Just a Wall. Can you describe a little bit about how those sections came together?
2: I'm so glad you asked that. Um, well, Say Her Name, I mean, because of the time that we're in and At the time when I was, you know, thinking, I mean, Sandra Bland was really heavy on my mind. There was, you know, and I don't think just about the Sandra Bland story in particular. I'm thinking about the ethos behind it, which is when the state commits violence against black men, everybody stands up. But when that same violence is perpetrated against black women, who's there for them? And that was the, you know, and it just made me think about that all the time. And I've started selling people at readings. I I did a reading for Gwendolyn Brooks to celebrate her birthday this week. And um, one of the things that I said was, I said, black women show up for everybody. Show up for everybody. (laughs) Not just your kids, not just your husband, not just your family, but in terms of the activist work that they have done that has changed America. Black women show up for everybody. If it wasn't for black women, the feminist movement would not be what it is in America. And some of the conversations that we've had would not be the same. The civil rights movement would not exist, which has influenced every other movement that we've had in America. And God forbid if it's a queer black woman, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> they've been there for everything. And it just makes me ask, I said, okay, so if you've showed up for everybody else, when is it, when is it somebody else's turn show up for you? And I, I think about that question a lot. Like, not that you have to have reciprocity for everything in this life, but it's kind of like that quote that James Baldwin shared with Angela Davis in that letter that's at the beginning of her book, If They Come in the Morning you know, it's like, if you don't say anything, when they pick up the first group of people in the morning, they then they pick up this group, they pick up this group and that group. So who's gonna stand up for you when they finally show up at your house. And I think that's the kind of ethos I'm pulling on to, you know, is thinking about You can't just expect one group to save you all the time. You can't expect for there to be a messianic figure. We all have a role in doing something. I think that's why I don't just write poems. (laughs) I don't just teach, you know, I mean, and I've really tried to encourage a lot of my former students to, to, to have a fuller life, to look at your life as a full and dynamic force where you do different things. It's hard and I do believe in self-care and you got to rest and you got to take care of yourself. But, you know, we we have to balance our lives to not leave it in shambles for whoever comes after us, which doesn't really sound like we're talking about poetry anymore.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it does, because I feel like that's, <laughs> it shows up in all the poems in this collection. You know, I think the, the way that you view the world so much of, poetry and we've talked about this a lot on on the show but like the the poem starts because the poet sees something right and it can be something literal it can be something that actually happens an event or it can just be that they see something in an emotion or in an idea they the poet has to notice something and see the poem in what they notice and so much of Mm -hmm. how we all see is about how we view and approach the world and if the the view that you come with is one that sees more than just, you know, a poet's life locked away with books, you know, just transcribing old masters and looking to the same literary canon and going through and trying to write homages to Milton or whatever. Um, not that there's anything wrong with Milton, I guess, but like, you know, it's, it's very different if that's the attitude that you bring to poetry or you're, you're a very strict formalist. And so you're always looking for the villanelle in the sidewalk or whatever. Um, but if you're, if you're, you know deeply rooted in your community, if you're looking for poems and ways to connect poetry to other people, I feel like that leads to a very different poetics when you sit down to actually write.
2: Or what if it, you know, I always, I always had this conversation with students that you need to look for new strategies to write poems because mm-hmm. the old ones you can use them indefinitely but i think the poems that people get excited about now people are looking for new strategies all the time um like i like this past spring i saw soma sharif talking about her book custom and she, she was talking about how she, she really developed the language for that book out of looking at this military dictionary of terms. Mm. And I was just like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> it's kind of like how when you go to an art talk and you hear somebody pull on this concept that's kind of us- unusual, and that's the hook that pulls you in. But I think we kind of need that because it's gotten to the point where if I read traditional poems with students, I say, so. What's the strategy or what's the writing prompt you would come up with reading this poem? Because if I give you prompts, then you never figure out that the poet who wrote the poem came up with their own prompt. You need to figure out your own prompts. I can give them to you, but figure out your own. And so they'll be like, oh, snap, we have to work. (laughs) Or like I had this one classroom at DePaul University here in Chicago, I was teaching there. And we had these two big, beautiful picture windows And if you've ever been to Chicago, we have a lot of these brick apartment buildings that have solid wood porches on the back, which Mm. I don't know what that's gonna do if we have a fire. I guess they hope it doesn't catch on fire first. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's a very kind of characteristic thing that you see on a lot of Chicago buildings. So these windows were facing like three apartment buildings. And I said, Okay, we've read poems by this person and this person and this person, where it's clear the poet is just looking out of the window (laughs) and writing about whatever's outside the window. I said, I guarantee you, we could probably write a poem every day just looking out of this window. So then I started brainstorming stuff. I said, what about the squirrel that's climbing up the scaffold? What about the scaffold where somebody always has a cigarette? what about the peeping Tom who's looking across the way because the one girl always has her window open? What about the person who lives on the floor underneath and do they ever holler up at the person on the floor above? And there was a bright blue hammock. And I said, what about the person who sits in that hammock? And they were like, damn, we never see anybody in the (laughs) hammock. So throughout the semester, we would just look out the window. And then one day I just happened to look and I saw the hammock moving and I said, Damn it! there's finally a person in the hammock, y'all. Oh,
0: my God.
2: <laughs> I said, there's your poem. <laughs> and I mean, it's very mundane, but it's like, it, it brings us back to that initial lesson of when you're a po- you're paying close attention.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's the same thing every day. It wasn't a change in the scenery, really. It's just, we noticed something very tiny changed, right? And, and what, what made the hammock so exciting? Maybe because it was warm out that day. Maybe, you know, it was the day the person who lived in that apartment finally felt safe about being outside on their porch. I don't know, but you can speculate, you can imagine, you can describe it, you know. What does it evoke in your chest when you see that hammock? Right? <laughs> Like it sounds stupid, but it it could be a poem. It could be a poem. I'm sure Mary Oliver or Kay Ryan could write a poem about a blue hammock and make you be in love. Oh, absolutely,
0: <laughs> for, oh sure. <laughs>
2: to, for sure. I want to languish in that hammock. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I haven't even seen the hammock firsthand, and now I'm already thinking about all the potential.
2: <laughs> right, and I feel like I do that a lot. Like I just look at random stuff, and people go, "You're weird, Bets." <laughs> But that's what makes for an interesting thing like you you get fascinated with these tiny things
0: one day down the street in front of the neighbor's house this log just showed up on the little bit of like the little sidewalk between the sidewalk and their front door and it stayed there for a year and a half at one point it moved from one side to the other and then one day it was gone why i don't know where it came from i don't know why it was there i don't know where it went but I would walk past it almost every day and think, what is going on? <laughs> what What is the story with this pretty big, but not so big one person couldn't move it log with a little, like a couple of mushrooms growing on it. Why is this happening? <laughs> what, right? What's going on here?
2: Or just that it's so weird to you. Maybe it's a way exactly. to enter a poem or a story. Or like, I remember like my last book, break the habit, I was talking about spiders because spiders kept coming up. And then it was thinking about how predatory spiders are in their relationships with each other. And I was like, oh yeah, this book's about relationships. And Okay, now I know why the <laughs> spiders are here. But, you know, or like I saw, I really started to think about Lucille Clifton's book, The Terrible Stories then, because um, she actually had a fox. That showed up on her porch every day at the same time and so the fox kind of became a recurring idea for her and so then I said okay the spiders are my fox they're my fox and I just ran with it you know and I think sometimes you know we have animals and they're kind of like little I don't want to say spirit animals I think they're harbingers for things or they're a sign or a symbol that are telling you to take that direction which is not that's not a scholarly way of looking at it. <laughs> it's probably more of a weird spiritual I try to read the signs thing and I like tarot cards and cowrie shells type stuff
1: <laughs> definitely yeah,
2: I yeah. candles and follow the moon uh, <laughs> Which I do some of that stuff, you know, I think that's, that's not bad, but.
0: No, I mean, it's all different strategies to kind of understand. It's ways to create narratives for yourself, you know, and to find, find the meaning that you need to find,
2: you know? And I kind of think too, I mean, and now there are people who are, oh, I'm writing a collection of poems about tarot cards, or I'm writing poems about them. I'm like, yeah, because we, we've we always come back to that when you didn't have all these other things. It's like some of those things are very elemental to life. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you're not a pagan or anything, you know, you may be <laughs> into something else, but, you know, the moon's going to be here probably until we, we're not here.
1: Yeah, it's got a few
0: billion years left, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and something else um. that's fairly <laughs> elemental for i think most of us certainly in my life uh is music which i think can serve a similar kind of connective Absolutely. purpose for for a lot of folks it's a it's a conduit to something else you know um and music is also all over this collection mm-hmm. um and I'm curious. Also, I mean, you mentioned that's just Gwendolyn Brooks's birthday. I recently learned that she and Prince share a birthday, so that's something else. Um, I was who also gets a shout out in in this collection at one point. But yeah, I'm I'm curious sort of about the role of of music showing up. Um, but it's also you know references to different musicians and different songs are sprinkled throughout. Um, as I mentioned, you know Bob Dylan. A quote from one of his songs opens one of the poems. Um, I'm curious both about kind of music in your life, but also how music intersects with when you're writing poems and how you think about bringing it into your poetry.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely think, I don't think I could write poems without music being a part of that. Um, a lot of times I write to instrumentals, whether mm. it's classical or jazz, or um, sometimes I like just regular beats like i like um flying lotus i like jay dilla i like who's the other one georgia ann muldrow i kind of like too and a lot (laughs) of people don't talk about her but fabulous producer and crazy beats um but i also like jazz i like classical music sometimes i play music that's for the chakras supposedly You know, um, or I put on, this is going to sound really strange. Like, I like, there's this one museum, I think it's in, or it's like um, an aquarium in Monterey. And I started doing this during the pandemic, but they have a lot of jellyfish camp. So sometimes they'll play music behind the jellyfish, and I'll just put that on the television and watch the jellyfish if I'm one trying to go to sleep or trying to calm down and write. Because there's something about the jellyfish that is very chill to me even though you know you can't go swimming with them but, <laughs> unless but it, they,
0: the way they move is very <laughs> relaxing they just is, they the the they're just kind of slow and they're
2: just kind of flowing <laughs> like they're in unison with the water and it's very calming but that brings me to the other like one of the other things <laughs> I really love is this daydreaming about things we we want to do right like so the jellyfish also remind me of the jellyfish in palau which is very close to the philippines so there's this natural bay where jellyfish for for i don't know how long generations have had no natural predators so they have no stingers so people go scuba diving with these jellyfish that don't exist anywhere in the world except in Palau. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to swim with the jellyfish.
1: Wow. So That's I amazing. dream
2: about that sometimes too. But I think the music is also kind of like that, that flow of the jellyfish. Like it's going to take you somewhere. Whether it's an emotional tenor or you start to see some image in your head or it takes you back to a spot where you heard it or it's another language that kind of captures in shorthand what you were feeling at a particular time. So yeah, music does it for me, you know, and it makes you think about poetry in a different way too. I did this talk where I was talking with another writer and podcast host, and we were talking, He, I said, you know, sometimes I think about when poets get up to read and... I, I would write down the poems that they read at the reading because they don't always read in order in the book. They may jump around, they may have a theme and I'm like, what are they doing? And I said, sometimes it would hit me like a playlist or a mixtape what they were doing. He goes, you really do think about poems like their music. I said, cause they kind of are. They're their own language that way. They're their own songs.
0: And especially when you're performing or when it's live, the way that a band puts together a set list for a concert is so, in many cases, it's very curated or it's curated to a degree and then they're kind of feeling out the energy of the audience about where to go, leaving a little bit of space for that. And the sequencing is so important. Um, But that's also, I mean, that can be a consideration in books, obviously, um, and collections, and I'm we started with Small Illuminations. I'm curious a little bit about where that falls in the collection, because it felt like there was a very strong sequence going on with, it felt to me like kind of a three poem sequence, because there's Priest the Pitbull, which is about a dog, uh, a pitbull, and kind of going beyond just the appearance of a pitbull, because there's so much negative uh, press on pitbulls, even though they're, by and large, just delightful and then it's small illuminations and then clear plastic bag which kind of gets into some of the details of contraband or what's allowed what's not allowed and why in uh in prisons and things and I was curious sort of how you thought about sequencing in this collection maybe even specifically how small illuminations ended up in that sequence
2: well I definitely think clear plastic bag was gonna be right after that phone, cause to me, you know, it's like you kind of see some of the things that are in the bag in small illuminations, but it's about what pulling things out of that bag does, more so than what's in the bag. But I said, you know what? I just think it's so weird that people carry these plastic bags. Like again, following the jellyfish, the thing that just seems odd, or following that blue hammock, or Whatever. And I was like, why well, do we got to carry these plans? And then I just kept thinking about it. I'm like, other than it's a security thing, it's a way for somebody to constantly have you under surveillance. Mm-hmm. Even though they know everything that's in the bag, they can see it, you know? And sometimes even that's not enough because they will take out your stuff, search everything, they'll search what's written on the page, they'll search and see if the gate pass has the number of pencils you are allowed to bring in that day. You know, and I get it. Sometimes there are things you need to have a safeguard, but then sometimes that policing goes a little bit further because people are exercising a certain amount of control. So I, I wanted to kind of have those two sides of that, but then also what priest the Pitbull Again, Priest was a, a dog I actually knew. Priest was my neighbor. That's what I called him. It was so scary. Like, if you looked at this dog, his mouth literally was probably at least most of his face, but he looked <laughs> like he was smiling at you. <laughs> so, and I grew up with dogs. I grew up with Doberman Pinchers. And then when I, my mom got a little bit older, she got dogs, um, so we had a dog that was Dachshund and Terrier and another dog that was Pekingese and Poodle. So they were little dogs. Um, but I wasn't really afraid of dogs. So when I saw this dog and I realized, okay, his energy is good. He's not <laughs> freaking out. And he literally walked into the building and I my apartment is at the level where people first come in the building. And he was literally wagging so hard, his whole body was doing, <laughs> like he was almost like, the tail was almost touching his front shank on his shoulder, because he was wiggling that much and just like ecstatic to be alive. And I was like, "What's your <laughs> dog's name?" He says, "My dog's name is Priest." I said, "Can I pet him?" He's like, "Yeah, Priest, come." I said, "Priest, come here, baby." And then I just rubbed him, and he's like, "Oh yes, I'll let you rub me all day." And I, was like, hey. and I, I was really, you know, it just struck me really hard, and I'm. I remember there was this anthology they were looking for, which I tell people this too, I feel like anthologies are sometimes an opportunity to use as a writing prompt, but I kept thinking about all these times I would go to readings and I would hear, for lack of a, but I can't think of anything sensitive to call it, but I feel like white people would be really excited about dog and cat poems. (laughs) (laughs) And Right. no offense i'm like if that's where your love is that's where your love is but I'm like, can we can we love people like we love dogs and cats and it's like sometimes the poems would be a little sophomoric and i was like like i love mark Doty's poems about dogs he has a really beautiful one that's up on i think it's like golden retrievals is the name of it it's gorgeous hmm. And I'm like, if you can't write a dog poem like that, don't, don't mess with it. Don't. <laughs> <read> it. <laughs> you know, but I said, well, what would my dog poem sound like? So I've written a couple. I wrote one about my dog Sheba that I had when I was a little girl. And Sheba was a Doberman pincher. But this one, I said, you know what? I haven't written about a dog in a long time. And I thought about Priest. And I said, yeah, Priest is. His name is Priest. So first off, he's got to be in a poem because he's got a cool name. You know?
1: It's a great name.
2: <laughs> right. And then I thought of, you know, Ron O'Neill and Superfly. I thought of, you know, how not just we criminalize these dogs, but we criminalize people all the time. Mm-hmm. And people will have more empathy for the dog than they would a human being. And that's kind of problematic to me. And I was like, well, maybe I can subtly sneak that thread in here, you know? And I think about, I don't know if you guys watch, I watch a lot of silly internet videos too. Can you tell? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Right there with you.
2: (laughs) So there was one where this, it was a black woman. You don't see her in the screen, except you see her hand where she reaches to pet the dog, but she, and this was after I had written the poem, published the poem. But she gives the dog the lecture. And it's like her version of the talk, which you know, they did a whole episode of Blackish about the talk. Like, how do you, you know, tell your black child how to talk when the police pull them over, or how do you deal with race, or how do you deal with sexism or homophobia? And you have that talk with your kids, right? She's having the talk with her pit bull. So, all you see is this dog sit down in front of her and he's happy to be alive. His mouth is open. And she was like, Look, people aren't going to treat you like these stupid little poodles. You have to act right when you go out in the world. And then she's like, And I will do my best to make sure you make it to your third birthday. Go get your things. We're going to go to doggy daycare. And then he like runs off to go get his little leaf. And I was like, Dang, in a way, that video makes the same point that the poem was trying to make. It's just funny. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes I'm I'm straddling with that. Like, I don't think I'm a comedian. I don't think I'm going to be a TikTok star. But I think (laughs) I'd like to get some of these ideas across in the poems of how we humanize stuff or how everyday things make us think of something we didn't expect. Because I was just playing with a dog. Did not think it was going to take this emotional turn in my head when I think about how people will criminalize a dog, or want to put a dog to sleep, or put them in the pound, or how we criminalize humans and act like they're less than human.
1: Definitely, just to be effusive for a little bit, which I think is partly becoming my mo. But um,
2: when I get to blush.
1: <laughs> well, I I was when what you were saying I. I was also thinking about your poem, The Body is Not the Bullet That Claims It, um, which I think the title really gets at, but the poem does too. That, um, And then thinking about that too in sequence with what comes next, that amazing prose poem piece, An Open Letter to the Voyeurs, um, which I think is about that that kind of voyeurs about death and kind of the um, the sort of sick pleasure that people have, um, knowingly or unknowingly about sort of consuming black death and black suffering. Um, I think in particular, um, and I don't know, like the, yeah, that the body is not the bullet that claims it really. Um, yeah, it, it makes me think of, um, it's writing against that kind of how you come to know the names of black men killed only in death. And then, um, Mm -hmm. and so I think it's just this, and, and especially too, what I loved is the, you know, even as a mother emits a blade of high hollow pain, something that really comes through in a lot of these poems is, is, is both the, the people that are being, um, you know, targeted or brutalized or, um, but also their connection and relationships with, with communities and family and all these other worlds. Um, and then that is also, um, you know, part of what makes them human. Um, and a lot of it is there. And, and that when one person is suffering, it's, it's also has this ripple effect. Um, right. So, yeah, I just, I don't know if I have a question, except I, if you have any things that you're thinking about in that way, but I, I do think that last section, especially like all the way through from that onward is kind of,
2: I think I was struggling with that, like this idea, I think if you live in Chicago, you can't help but think about it because it's a city that's often stereotyped. And and the city is criminalized. Let's just be clear on that. Like everybody wants to talk about how much people are shooting in Chicago and how it's not safe and how can you live. Like, I'm just like, it doesn't sound much different from how I hear people try to talk to me about how can you teach there? What is it like? Oh my God, are you safe? And then like, it feels almost insulting and patronizing at a certain point and, you know, sometimes there is a racial subtext under that, more often than not, especially when people talk about the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really thought about that a lot, because you know, you can't even teach little kids here in Chicago, and somebody's going to write a poem where they talk about gun violence. Like, it's very prominent here that way. And I was like, Well, why is that narrative so prominent? And we never talk about all the kids who go to college and get scholarships. We never talk about all these people who start their own businesses. People who, like I live down the street from Eric Williams who's run the block party which is one of the biggest free events in the country. Now they're finally charging for tickets. But at that event, he's been doing it for over 20 years. There's never been an instance of violence never been a fight and all these performers who have performed or gotten their start there or who love this city dearly and I was just like okay they're stripping away all of that to tell us how bad everything is all the time but they didn't want to talk about that until it became successful like astronomically successful and So I think about stuff like that. I think about, I mean, part of where that title came from, the body is not the bullet that claims it. It's like, if you're just going to talk about the shooting, you're not talking about everything that happened before the, the shooting ever was there. How did this person grow up? Where did they go to school? What was their nickname when they were a kid? How did their, what was their, the first sweater their mom put on them for their first fall at school? Like, who did they fall in love with? Who did they have their first argument with? What was their favorite song? Like, you miss all of that, you know? And a lot of people who are really fascinated with, with these violent narratives, would you even talk to a person who experienced that if it wasn't in the news? Would you want to be friends with them? Would you want to help them? would you want to just listen and and i got really sick of it because it's like i'll I'll tell you a story about the open the letter the open letter to the voyeur's poem i sent that to a lot of magazines no one wanted to publish it no one (laughs) and it was very interesting to me because it was at the height of when everybody wanted to publish a poem about police brutality And that was part of the reason why I wrote it, because there were people who've never seen a police officer apprehend someone, never been pulled over, never been shot at. And they wanted to tell me how, I I won't say who it was, (laughs) but it was somebody who was teaching at a university and their spouse was teaching at a university. And these were not Black people, but they were like talking about how they were working on this project about a book um, of people who were victims of police violence and how this was a current news hook that they thought was very important to talk about. And they can't see my air quotes on the podcast, but I'm really being, I have some snark behind that because the, the tone of the conversation was, oh, we're gonna follow this hook that everybody's on right now. And for some of us, it's not a hook this impacts our families and our communities in very real ways. And you don't even see us like people except for when you see an opportunity. And that's that's exploitation. You know, I wouldn't go and write about playing croquet unless I did it. <laughs> you know? And I played croquet once, I played croquet once. It's not my jam. I might do it again. It seems like it could be fun, you know, but that's not my place to write about it. If somebody has been playing croquet for 20 years and their parents taught them how to play and they grew up knowing the history of that, like, no, that's not my place. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying? I'm trying to make light of it, but I'm. No, I do. I do.
0: Like, I
2: you do. You can't just enter into it and be like, Oh, this is cute. That's like you being a, an emotional tourist. mm-hmm. And I don't think poets are good emotional tourists. <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> no, definitely you not. Know,
2: like you may read to understand experiences that are different from your own, but to write them, I feel like I don't know. It just feels like you're you're pimping the the subject matter.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear that a a different angle on the same topic wasn't quite welcome at that time, it sounds like.
2: I also feel like too, there's a certain level of danger in that though, right? Like if everybody is saying, we have to talk about this violence and everybody gets shot and the police are always after us. It's like, okay, what else is happening to you? Cause I'm sorry, the police are not chasing black people every time we turn. And I don't say that cause I don't want to sound like, you know, Ben Carson or anything, but <laughs> I'm just thinking like, what makes you want to stay alive when those things happen
3: Mm.
2: and and we have a lot of joy in our lives or we have things that we look forward to or memories that sustain us and histories that sustain like there's all these things that help keep us here love keeps us here music keeps us here you know our families keep us here you know like even um I have a long-running thesis about the walking dead that I think relates to this a little bit. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the things that really had me hooked on that show for a long time and I'm not done with it yet. I haven't gone back and finished it. But it was the things that made people act the most human in the in the in the vast inhumane treatment by humans and post-humans. And that was <laughs> Because zombies are post-humans. But anyway, right. um, art. Because whenever somebody created something on the show, whether it was a song or a poem or a picture, you saw this glimpse into people being more human. Love and children. I guarantee you, any episode of the show, when those three things come up, <laughs> that's when people act their best or their most human or they're most vulnerable. And I think that's kind of what I want to see in the poems. What makes you be your most human self? What makes us feel tender about you? and want to care for you.
0: Yeah, the fullness of life.
2: Right. And I think too, there's not a lot of interrogation of people who are editors, there's not a lot of interrogation of people who are fascinated with a subject for the wrong reasons. Or people who have been benefiting from things like dare I say the literary industrial complex <laughs> you know there's a lot of people who have been like they wrote poems about hors d'oeuvres or being on the French Riviera and they get those <laughs> poems published and who, who who cares about those poems <laughs> like I like a good food poem like everybody else but I'm also like
0: do we need Ooh. ode to two dozen cucumber sandwiches in the French Riviera sun? Exactly. <laughs> part exactly. five.
2: Like if you're not if you're not giving me the actual sandwiches and helping <laughs> me get to the French Riviera, I don't really want to read the poem. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know. Uh, so yeah. one other part about that poem that I was curious about that I wasn't sure if it was a connection that was just in my head, but um, the sort of the First, the dedication for this book um, is this is for the the women, my former students, and all the people who should be more visible than Ellison's unforgettable protagonist. You are brighter than hundreds of lights burning the shadows out of all the shadowy corners. Remember that, Um, which I really love. And then I was remembering um, it's been a while since I read. Uh, invisible man. Um, but one of the things that I remember and you can correct me if I'm remembering incorrectly is that he he kind of the character has like found a way to live sort of off the grid in a way and he has this like electric sort of um, life hack for a better phrase. Um, that then is narrating the kind of whole story because I think the beginning of that the book starts with him in that situation and then he sort of tells his story and then um, you return to it at the end and I was I was thinking about that like electricity thing especially at the end of the open letter to the voyeurs when um, Mm -hmm. this is a history wired routed to eliminate Dim any charge that jumps clear off grid. Some seem to forget how I am a daily observer of electricity. Um, And yeah, I just was curious if, I don't know, if you could talk about that, if there is any connection.
2: (laughs) You know, it wasn't an intentional connection, but I like it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know when I wrote the, the dedication, it was well after the book was done. And I was really thinking, who do I want to dedicate this book to? Because um, my first, sadly enough, my first two books were dedicated to relatives who passed away. So mm-hmm. I said, okay, I don't wanna, you know, I do think about Inasaki Shange, said I regularly have moments where I visit with the dead, but I was like, not today. Um, <laughs> and I kept thinking about, what's the most brilliant image in black writing that keeps coming back to me? So I immediately thought of that room with all the light bulbs that's in the beginning of Invisible Man and our protagonist who decides he's going to remove himself from everything and create his own light in this little pocket of space that no one is thinking about. And I think I think sometimes we do that, right? If you're a little bit subversive, you try to create spaces that are in, in um, kind of either like the subterranean or in the shadows or in the background of these larger spaces to, to create something new, to create something fresh, to be who you are. So there's that. But I was also like, why do we have to create our own light? Why can't we just be in the the sun? Why can't we be connected to other people? So I was like, you're brighter than that. And I just kind of was thinking of that idea. And I said, how can I say that as simply as possible in a way that if you haven't read Invisible Man, somehow it makes sense. So I was thinking that from the beginning, but in terms of the poem, um, Open Letter to the Voyeurs, I wrote that at a totally different time. And I do think there's a certain kind of electricity, there's a certain kind of vibrance we see in people. Some people, you know, they're walking around, they're just kind of down, they're down, or they're just really repressed and they're always holding back. And I was like, I'm always looking for the person who's like, yeah, I'm here, (laughs) I am going to a, and you can be silent and do that. Like I had a poet who was in my class at Northwestern this past quarter and, probably the quietest poet in the room but he would get on that page and he would just say something and then slowly over the semester I would see him do stuff like he might giggle or he would do (laughs) something like and I knew I said he's got it he's got that little mischief in him and I like it even if he never (laughs) says anything I know it's there and I think we fight our whole lives to keep that we fight for that because you know, it's kind of like David Foster Wallace talking about this is water. And after a while, the tedium of your life just grinds you down and you have to make a decision about whether or not you're going to go with that grinding. And I think that's one of the things I try to encourage, like through writing, through reading is like, you got to keep your spark alive. And I didn't want to say that and be, you know, that could be hokey. That could be a little greeting cardish and i think just thinking of when you think about the order of circuitry and you think about how it's systemic what if you have an electricity that cannot be routed through a system like a thunderbolt or rather lightning lightning can't be routed through a system or if you happen to I don't know, rub against something and then you create a blue spark and you shock somebody. That's not regulated, it's not in a system. (laughs) So I I was thinking, I think about that kind of image, like something that kind of jumps off of that system as opposed to when Ralph Ellison creates this guy who's like, kind of like hiding in the, the corners and trying to make himself be removed but still like siphoning off of that, which to me, it kind of reminds me of um The Undercommons with Stefano Harney and and Fred Moten. Fred wrote M- that yeah. book. And in that book, that's kind of what they're talking about. It's like, are you siphoning off of this larger system that one, won't miss it, but two, you're doing something that is counter to that system.
0: Yeah,
1: and it also, it reminds me of the the, po- the line, the small illuminations in a dark hell of the kind of that moment that the speaker has with, with Albert or with the, um, the, the cellmate who's handing the book from like creating that little light that's in that sort of dark, dark hell, I don't know.
2: Yeah, I think that was one of the best things about having Albert in my classroom. He was one of those people, he would just smile and light up Hmm. you don't always have students who smile you know especially when you have grown men who are in prison who are trying to not be vulnerable so when you have somebody who smiles (laughs) you know and not in a creepy way or like a flirtatious way they're just genuinely showing and expressing joy that's a that's a rarity you know And there was something about it that just made me think about him. I was like, damn, what was he like when he was a kid? Mm. You know, and I think that was the kernel of the poem, you know, just great. He had a great smile. Like if I notice somebody is opening up in that way and it feels natural instead of like, you know, they're trying to run game or or just kiss your butt, (laughs) (laughs) you know. Because even if he didn't know an answer in class, and I think I even kind of say that in the poem, he didn't know an answer. I knew he didn't know, because he would do this smile. He'd just be like <laughs> <laughs> And I'd be like, okay, Albert. <laughs> there somebody want to help him out? Or are you thinking it might be this? And then he'd be like, yeah, okay, I'll go with that. <laughs> that's a very natural kind of moment in the classroom you know and and the fact that you know I think too people think if you teach in a prison like there's going to be some kind of different classroom experience and sometimes I had to tell people I'm like yes they're more engaged than the students that pay tuition <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs>
2: you know yeah. they were more involved and spirited and ter- and excited about talking about what they read you know so I kind of missed that
0: i think it's probably a good time for us to hear the poem again
2: so i'm reading again you're up again (laughs) (laughs) but here's the poem we'll do it again and hopefully you get some things if you're listening out there in podcast land that turn over and speak to you in a different way this time small illuminations one albert is a gentle tower his arms arched over tabletop like bridge beams or girders. Even if he does not understand everything he reads, he smiles like a good kid, like the kid he probably was 30 some years ago when he was in the wrong car with the wrong people at the wrong time that he will never get back. Two, the attention to detail borders on flawless, unscuffed white sneakers, perfected lined fades tucked under precisely folded scullies immaculate with what you got as a clean hard fought pride. Three, one week I bring crisp folders, a bundle of sharpened pencils with full pink erasers round and soft as a doll's blush. They rub away small errors, clearing smudges from a page like an actual correction. I look for Albert's easy grin first when I walk into the concrete block classroom locked in the education building relieved that the broken window denies the cold like a plea one brother in blues with thermal sleeves peeking out of the dull faded ocean of cloth arching over his torso a cellmate hands me the slightly worn, safeguarded, staple-bound book of poems. The signature resolute and matching letters of a poet's name who strolled into prison like a mother without fear of any child. Margaret Burroughs, more than a decade since she left the cell of her body. I clutch her poems knowing how they passed from her hands like a prayer. We both smile. Small illuminations in a dark hell. When the cellmate says, Albert wanted you to have this, he got transferred. He knew you'd keep it safe.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. you. And thank you for joining us. And that poem, of course, is from the very soon to be released collection, Refuse to Disappear, which is coming out on July 1st you gotta get it you have to get it you gotta get it's, it it's the
1: only choice you can make
0: if you've listened to this podcast you know at a very very low volume at the beginning you uh agreed via secret audio contract that by <laughs> listening to the podcast you have to go get a copy of the book so
2: <laughs> we learned a lot talked about a lot of books and i made you laugh a little bit because there's medicine
0: <laughs> absolutely um, before we let you go we obviously Connor and I at the end of shows share some recommendations for reading watching listening sometimes all three um is there anything that you would like to recommend to listeners something that's really uh getting you going at the moment
2: I want to watch the documentary fantastic fun because I do believe nature documentaries are a gateway to poems um I always recommend Lucille Clifton uh as one of my former teachers, but also just like a master poet who wrote about everything. I'm about to read Destiny Birdsong's novel, and she's a wonderful poet. Negotiations is a great book of poems. Here is, thing, I didn't know I was over here. So this is the Florence Tate book I mentioned. It's Sometimes Farm Girls Become Revolutionaries. So it was Greg Tate's mom with Jake Ann Jones. So that would probably be One of my recommendations, if you like a history nonfiction book, I also want to read because I try to mix it up a little bit. There's this novel called Search by Michelle Hunnigan. So it's about this group, this small town, and they have to interview a new pastor for their church. And this writer starts to learn things about herself in the process of Of interviewing these candidates to find a new pastor for her church and I was just like oh my god that sounds so interesting and normally I don't read stuff like that but I was like I kind of like it because one I grew up in a small town and two it just sounds like it could get very spicy in places that you didn't expect (laughs) Um, I'm definitely looking at there's a cookbook that I'm excited about um maybe Juneteenth is coming up but uh Jubilee by Tony Tipton Martin so I am reading poems like I have a huge stack of poetry books that I'm working through um I always go back to Blacks by Gwendolyn Brooks it's like a poetry bible for me album wise a lot of Georgia Ann Muldrow Mary J Blige because I've been writing 411 poems but she also came out with a new album and she's working on a memoir so I'm I'm really interested in writing about her. There's something about maybe because we're about the same age and we're both Capricorns.
0: That's awesome. So, That's a great set of recommendations.
1: It's
2: fun. I try to keep it, <laughs> keep it light, keep it fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for sharing all of your insights, all of your recommendations, both during the actual recommendation segment and in our conversation. Um, I hope folks we'll take the opportunity to take some notes listening to this episode and explore all of the different literary and and musical uh, names and, and books and everything that got mentioned during the episode. And of course we hope everybody goes out and buys the book. Thank
1: you. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. Really appreciate it.
2: Take care guys. All All right.
1: You too. Have a good night. Take care. Connor, uh oh,
0: uh oh, indeed. Uh oh. You know the most difficult question of the whole evening. Here it comes. Oh, what have you? What have you? Uh, what have you been up to? What are you doing? What's going on? What are you reading, watching, listening to these days? What's going on in in Conland, Con, con Worlds? Oh man. Okay. All right. You cornered me.
1: I have no, no choice. Um. Well, Jack. I have a simple recommendation. Well, I have two. The first is, of course, Refuse to Disappear, Tara Betts. It's really, really good. Highly recommend it. Um, my other recommendation is so Harry Styles came out with a new album. And I have to say, I like it a lot. Yeah, it's called Harry's House. And Yeah, I don't know. There's something about, I feel like it was happening in his last album where he's just got a good, you know, he's just grooving, but like he's got like a kind of sensuality that's good, like that watermelon sugar song. And there's a lot of that in this one. As it was, is probably the one that's been on the, the radio a lot um but that's great then also daylight is also a great song um but then he's also got these songs you know music for a sushi restaurant and like that's literally what he says and he's just like music for a sushi restaurant and there's like horns that are just bopping about and it's like it's a little funky um I feel like he talks about fruit a lot and that's good. Um, (laughs) But I don't know. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, I just, I, I like the whole album. Uh, And I, I, um, yeah, I recommend it. Harry's house, Harry Styles.
0: Nice. I got to check that out. I admit, I've been very bad about keeping up with his music. I'm, basically kind of staying aware of like what he does. <laughs> like yeah. more as a, a celebrity than I have been able to really hone in on the music. But everybody enjoys the music and I feel like I should probably check that out. So this is a good a good nudge in that direction for me. Yeah, because he, he's you know he, he obviously started with one direction
1: and obviously I love one direction. Um but it is you know it's like pop pop. It's like you know it's 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 like industry made pop and you know they do it really well but since he's kind of done his own thing I feel like he's he's um I don't know he's like come into uh, I don't know he's like figuring out his his voice that he wants to do and I have to say I like it um And he always has a fun fashion and he looks like he's happy to be in the world. And that's nice. So I would love to be invited to Harry's house is all I'm saying. Harry (laughs) Styles, if you would like to invite me, I will go. Okay. You could
0: meet Olivia Wilde.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I do love Olivia Wilde. Wait, she was on house. (gasps) Where Harry's house.
0: Oh my goodness. Full circle.
1: Do you think he's secretly solving impossible to solve medical mysteries?
0: Do you think that her name could become Olivia wild styles? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <Wait>, wild <laughs> styles. Yeah. Holy. What if he changed his name too? What if they both changed to being the wild Styles-es? Oh my God. I'm okay. Harry wild styles. I love that. Well, yeah. Jack, um, uh-huh. Okay, I've
1: I've confessed my love of hair styles. So now I turn it to you. Yes. What are you watching, listening to, reading? Um what are some recommendations?
0: All right, here we go. Watching, finally catching up on the TV series of What We Do in the Shadows, which is based off of the Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement film from 2014 about a group of housemate vampires in Wellington, New Zealand, except this is about housemate vampires on Staten Island, uh, which I love. It's it's great. It's hilarious. It's exactly the same kind of tone as the movie, which I also really enjoyed. Uh, And yeah, funny, witty, lots of good, weird vampire humor. I'm very into it. Loving what we do in the shadows. Um, Just a, a good slice of fun there's an episode where one of the vampires laszlo goes uh he it turns out didn't pay for a room in los angeles that he rented from jim the vampire played by mark hamill also known as luke skywalker in star wars (laughs) and so rather than pay his debt or deal with the situation he scampers off and goes undercover and there's a running thread in the episode where when he put part of his disguise is basically blue jeans and a toothpick <laughs> so that he's like unrecognizable as a human he looks exactly like himself and he still talks like himself um but he goes by the name Jackie Daytona and there's a running joke in the episode that when he has the toothpick in no one can recognize him <laughs> like literally the guy doesn't recognize him and then when he takes his toothpick out he's like oh my god it's you um but he's like He claims he's from Arizona, but he still talks like Laszlo. He's like, I'm Jackie Um, And like, you know, you talk all weird in European. He's like, this is how we talk in Arizona. (laughs) Because he's claiming he's from Arizona. Um, But it's just a bunch of great, weird, absurd stuff like that. And it's just a lot of fun. Reading... I am reading the book Defund Fear Safety Without Policing Prisons and Punishment by Zach Norris, which had a different title, I believe, when it was in hardcover, Um, but it is now out in paperback under the title Defund Fear. And it's a really great book that tells a lot of different stories that all kind of make the point that our current air quotes justice system uh, is not actually based around justice. It's based around punishment and fear. And that is kind of carried out through the current apparatus of increasingly militarized policing and the ever-growing prison industrial complex. And reading the collection from Tara Betts that we were talking about and talking with her, um, it's it sort of builds on on a lot of that reading that I've been doing. And yeah, the book is right. When you talk to most people about criminal justice, as we call it, a lot of their answers are about punishment and about their own fear and they're not about a community safety perspective. Um, And this book does a really, really good job kind of breaking down not only the current apparatus, but also the way of thinking that created it and maintains it. And Mm. I think that's what is kind of a little bit different about it, um, is that it really would help someone who maybe... Believes there's something wrong with the criminal justice system, but doesn't recognize the ways in which maybe they are, they have bought into some of the narratives that create and perpetuate it. It does such a good job deconstructing those narratives. And I, I think it would help people along the continuum towards a more abolitionist mindset. Um, and it is currently the common read for the unitarian universalist congregations and fellowships this year so Woo-hoo. go you you <laughs> <laughs>
1: ah, i love that yeah
0: so yeah staten island vampires and uh defund fear